The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. There we go. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for, again, the privilege of opening your word and having a copy of your word before us. And we ask as we look at these things today that we might be uh, encouraged, challenged um, by um, your design for the way the church operates. And um, we're thankful for that. And um, we're thankful for uh, everybody that you put in the body of Christ, all the different places where we are and how those Uh, positions can work together. And we're thankful for this and ask that we might be encouraged and even uh, made to think a little bit more about our own uh, thinking and our own responsibilities uh, in this local assembly, as well as with believers that we meet in other places. And we thank you for all of this then. Amen. So in the book of Titus, again in chapter 2, as we're looking at, uh, and I keep using this expression and coming into Titus when I was reading through Titus in advance of the study, um, kind of coming across this idea of setting things in order, that there were things that needed to be set in order. And uh, I think it's important. I, I would say probably for the most part here in our church, I, I trust most of you have, have a pretty good understanding of kind of how uh, how a church is supposed to operate, how, how a local expression of the body of Christ should, should function. Uh, you'd be surprised, however, um, we have friends in another church, and uh, they're uh, and they were telling us that their um, uh, speaker that that's been teaching teaching their uh, filling in has been teaching on how a church functions, what a church is supposed to be in, how a church functions, and they've had people in the church that have been surprised and shocked, like, oh, that's what a church is, and that's what a church is supposed to do. And you'd be surprised how many people out there really don't have a, a good understanding on how the church is, how God's designed the church. And yet it's all right here in the Word. It's not found in our church constitution. We hope our church constitution reflects this. But in, in the end, we have to come back to the Word of God. In fact, many years ago, I don't know if you, some of you may remember this, some of you may have been here at the time, but when we redid the constitution many, many years ago, I remember... Um, Remember Josh actually pointing a couple things out. Um, I think the two of you were newlyweds at the time, and we had a meeting one night. And both of you raise your hands and you say, um, "That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says on that passage." And we went through and we looked at scriptures, and as a result, we—I don't know if we changed it or scratched it out. I know we did, but we wanted that to reflect the Bible. But in the end, we still have to always come back to scripture. We don't actually go pull a document out of the file cabinet and say, "Well, the Church Constitution says." Church Constitution may say when we're going to have a meeting, we have to announce it a couple of times because we don't have a chapter and verse telling you how often you have to announce a meeting in advance before you vote. But what we're really concerned about is how we function in terms of the Word of God. And uh, so as we're looking at this, we've, we've looked at the fact that as he starts this off, he talks about this plan in Titus, this God's plan for how we have eternal life and how we live that eternal life out in a manner that glorifies God. And then we saw that 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 uh, Titus was, has instructions on finding elders and pl- and appointing elders in these different churches on the island island of Crete. And at the end of that, he tells us the importance of those elders having a real keen grasp 
on the doctrine, the teaching that governs your life. And that's not the entirety of the Word of God. That's some of the Word of God. The entirety of the Word of God does not govern your life. God has not told me to go and offer my son up on a mountain and take him up there and offer him like he did to Abraham with Isaac, although he stopped him. But he's never asked me to do that. He's never asked me to build an ark. He's not asked any of us to build a tent that he might come down and make his presence known among the people of God. So there are things that he clearly has told people, and it did govern what they were supposed to do, but that's not for us. And do we accept those things to be true? We do. Those are easy examples of the fact that just because it's written in the Bible doesn't mean I'm supposed to do it. I'm not building a tent. I'm not offering a child, which Abraham actually did not do in the end because God stopped him. Uh, I'm not building an ark or a myriad of other things. I think that's important. But what happens is you have people, and Jim pointed this out in the class this morning, you have people, and the next section there in Titus is dealing with false teachers. And we took two weeks dealing with the problem of false teachers. And the reason that elders, people need to be able to deal with that. If you have false teaching and you just have an elder that never wants to address problems like that, so let's say I go off the rails in terms of what I teach, and the other people that are teachers in the church never want to say anything about it. Oh, it's Tim. We don't want to, we don't want to mess with Tim, so we're not going to say anything about it. We're just going to let it go. That's not good for anybody. It's not good for me, but it's not good for anybody in the church, is it? No, it's not. So you need to be able to have people that are discerning to look at the Word of God and say, what governs our conduct and what doesn't? And, the, and the, the thing about it is, most people, and Jim was talking about this this morning, when Satan was, was tempting Jesus because he, he replied with the word of God, what does Satan do with the last two statements? He quotes a passage of scripture and he applies it to Jesus in a time and place that it is not appropriate. See, so just because I can find a verse in the Bible that tells me something does not necessarily mean that that verse is for me or that I should live by that. And so you have a lot of false teachers that will open the Bible. I bet there's messages going all over the world today in Christian churches where you have people that have a verse, they have a text of scripture that they're going to read and then they're going to tell you something. And it may be something that they've invented. And the text of Scripture was a jumping off point. In fact, um, Josh and I had professors that they said one day that their chapel speaker came in and says, I'm sorry, but I don't have a text of Scripture for my message today. I forgot to get one. <laughs> I don't know if Josh remembers ever hearing that account, but I was always like, how in the world did you put a message together without having a text of Scripture? You know, but that's because people get an idea of, they've, it's a dangerous thing. We spend a lot of time thinking about stuff and we put stuff together, or sometimes we even go to the Bible looking for something to say what we think we want to say. That is a that is super dangerous ground, and so we have to be real careful. And so you want to be you want men that are competent to handle with handle false teachers. Today we're going to turn to the fact that that um, 
Titus, and I believe the elders, the elders are involved in this. This is what something that the elders are going to have to be able to do. So this isn't just something that Titus is going to be doing, but they're going to be talking about different groups. And I don't know if we're going to get through all five of these groups today. It's Father's Day. I'm not going to make it. Hey, how about that? Father's Day. I didn't plan it this way, but the first thing we're going to talk about is elder men, which I think I look around here. Biblically, that actually applies to just about everybody in here. By elder men, he's meaning, if you look in Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Verse 2, older men is simply the word for elder. It's the same word that's used back up in the context in chapter 1 where appointing elders in all the churches. But we, this is an illustration that in the same context, we can have the same word that has two different meanings. Up there, it's talking about men that are spiritually mature that can serve as bishops in a church. That's an overseer. We don't call us... Uh, we had some kids that used to call me bishop because they thought it sounded fun. I don't ask you to ever do that. In fact, just call me Tim. It's fine. Okay, you don't have to call me... You don't have to be so formal as... as uh, um, I always give Ben Orth a hard time because he always says, Pastor Tim, Pastor Tim, I, which I think is funny. Because I that's I don't I look at myself as Tim anyway, sorry I'm off the rails, there, <laughs> don't have to come after me for that because it was just mental, anyway back to the main point is that that's what those elders are back up there in chapter one when we're talking about elders down here he's simply using the term of men that are older, not the younger men because if you want the younger men we're going to look down in. Uh, uh, verse 6, it says, likewise, urge the young men, the younger men, uh, to be sensible. Okay, And so he's going to talk about the older men, he's going to talk about the younger men, and in between he's going to talk about the older and younger women. And then at the end of this, he's going to talk about slaves. So he's going to emphasize five categories. The one thing he never addresses in here, which is to me really interesting, he never really addresses the children. And we go, well, isn't that the younger men and the younger women? Well, the younger women are married. So that's not talking about they're not kids, okay? And I don't think it's the same thing with the younger men. I think he's talking about younger men that are adults, but they just haven't, they're not at a level of maturity that they're considered elders. And this is really interesting, having read through this again, uh, just doing a little background reading, elders in their culture, men, both the Greeks and the Hebrews likewise, they didn't consider a man to be an elder until they were about 40, which is really amazing because I came in here and started pastoring when I was 27. I wasn't even close to being an elder in that sense. But they kind of had an age in there in which they considered a man to be, to be capable of serving as an elder. So we come here to verse 1 of chapter 2, and it says, But as for you, speak the things that are fitting of sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. And that word, healthy doctrine, that he's talking about here, in this regard, as he's, as he's speaking about these things, is that doctrine that you don't practice. So this, again, is talking about truths that you accept to be true. It's, they're real, they're genuine, but you don't practice them in their lives. And uh, I went back and reviewed all these this morning uh, while I was still laying in bed. Pulled down my iPad and went back through all of these one more time just to kind of refresh my memory. Uh, sometimes I do that on Saturday night, but I did it this morning laying there. And again, I was impressed by how often this expression of healthy, healthy or sound, is used with the word words and this term for doctrine, this word didaskalia. 
truth that isn't for our, our practice. And I'm going to show you, I think, two places where I think that this illustrates what he's talking about. Okay, Two places where I think he, he illustrates what he's talking about in here. So I want you to go down here in this context and uh, let's go down to verse 5. Now this doesn't say healthy doctrine, but I think that this is what it's talking about. And he's talking to the younger women and he says the purpose of all of this is, when he gets to the end of verse 5, that the word of God, and I don't think he's talking about the whole Bible. I think he's talking about the word about God should not be blasphemed or dishonored. That word blaspheme, I think we've talked about this recently. It's just an English pronunciation of a Greek word. And it meant to dishonor. It meant to abuse. It meant to, um, to slander. Those were this idea to attribute to something, somebody something that's not true. And so he says, younger women, he says, what he says to them, it's important so that the word about God is not blasphemed. Now look down again in uh, verse 10, and he's talking to the slaves. And he says that the, that the doctrine of God, our Savior, and that word doctrine there is didaskalia. In other words, it's a doctrine you don't practice. So what is it that you believe about God? What are the things that you know are true about God, our Savior? In, uh, might be adorned in every respect. In other words, what he's saying is, is that those slaves, before their masters, the way they live, they can be really dressing nicely, adorning, putting in order the doctrine about our God. Let me use both of those as examples very quickly. The young women that he's talking about, you know, how they relate to their husbands, how they relate to their children and some other things. He says one of the things is they don't want the word of God to be blasphemed. What happens if you've got this, this woman? And let, let's put it in a particular context that may have been very real. She's, she's married to this man. She hears the gospel and she gets saved and he's not. So now she's saved, he's not, and she refuses to submit to her husband. She's like, no, I'm going to Bible study. No, I'm going to church. She's with him all the time. Listen, you need to think this, and you need to think this. And she's haranguing him, and she's not submitting to her husband in that particular context because she's always pushing these kind of things. And she's not showing any kind of fondness for him. She's not showing any fondness for her children. And it's as this, these things go on in there, what happens is they're going, this is what your God does? Your God does make, makes you, used to be a nice wife and now you're rebellious and now you're, you're in my face all the time. And what's the matter with, I don't know if I like this God. You see what happens? How, the, how the, this word about God can be blasphemed by the conduct of a believer. And we all understand. I mean, I could understand if I were this young woman or if I were a man and I, I, you're married and, and you want this other person to believe what you want them, what you believe. Maybe you do. <laughs> I would assume you would want to. But you can be so driven by what you want and driven by your zeal that you actually can cause more problems for what the word says about God. Let's go down to the slave. The slave gets saved. And the slave comes back to his master, you know, and says, and the master says, we're reading that. I was at Bible study. Um, evening chores? 
They didn't get done. You got chores out there. Where were you when it was supper time? You were supposed to be serving my food. Remember Jesus uses that illustration? A master doesn't come in and say, hey, I'll feed you. He goes, no, I sit down. You can take care of yourself after you take care of me. Jesus says this is what a master and a slave relationship is. And this guy, well, I was at Bible study. Bible study? What's, you know, what's that? Well, we're talking about God. We're talking about this Jesus. Oh, that's what your God is. A God that teaches you that you don't have to obey me anymore as your master? That you can do that? One of the things in there, pilfering. Um, I've noticed that, the, that the, uh, the, the petty cash fund in there is a little short. Well, <laughs> do you take some? Yeah, because there was a need at church, and so I took a, you know, I took a few shekels and took them in there and pat and gave them to these people. He go, what? That's not what that's for. That's for paying the bills of the house. That's for helping when little incidentals pop up. This is the kind of God you serve. You get the idea? Get you get the picture? In other words, your conduct, and this is true for every one of us, whether we are specifically addressed in this list here or not. Our daily conduct says something to the people around us, the people we live with, the people we work for, the people that work for us, the people that are our neighbors. All these people that we encounter, our lifestyle is saying something to them about God. And if our lifestyle is, you know, if our neighbors drive up the street and they see and, you know, they see that, you know, the holsters, I don't know what kind of rebellious thing we'd be doing up here. Um, I don't, I have no idea, but let's say we're doing something crazy and they drive up and they see that they're going, man, what is a man? I'm not, I'm not going to talk to them about God. Those people are nuts. And people might think that sometimes just when you're living the Christian life, they might think that's crazy for good reason. You know what I'm saying? You're doing something good is what I'm trying to say. But. I mean, let's say Peg and I just start, I, I have no idea. I don't have any good examples, but you get the point. Your lifestyle says something about God, and this is what he's getting at. I want you to look at one other passage in this, in chapter 3. Chapter 3, and I think that this is a, a nice little example of our God. And it's in chapter 3, in verse 4. It says, and when the, notice this, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love or fondness for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not, not from works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his, his mercy, his pity, by a washing of regeneration and renewal, and that by the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, it's when the kindness of God our Savior appeared. Again, this goes back do you remember the, the thing I was telling you early on in, in before the, we started the Bible study at the beginning, that, that man that I listened to on the internet that had, was a third-generation atheist, what did he figure everybody does when they come to churches? You're bad. You're horrible. You're all going to hell and you're going to burn. You're bad. You're horrible. You're all going to go to hell and you're going to burn. This is what he figured church was because that's what the world, and you know what? There is actually some truth to the fact that that's exactly what, the way churches are. In fact, I remember the very first year we were here that there was a man that came several times over the course of that first year. And when I went to visit with him in his house, he says, well, you do. He had a good Arkansas accent. 
<laughs> which I'm not even going to try to imitate, but he said, he said, you know, you do a pretty good job with the Bible. He says, but he says, I think some of those people in there need some good hellfire and brimstone. He says, we don't hear enough of that anymore. We need hellfire and brimstone. And I said, I said, I, as a pastor, I'm a shepherd. I'm shepherding people. And so I'm taking care of people. And so I'm trying to help them understand the word of God better. I said, my chief job is not to be reaching the unsaved with the gospel. And I said, and I, I don't remember everything I said, because I'm trying to be really super kind with this guy. But I said, God doesn't. It's not really that God is in your face. You're going to burn. Let me give you, let me paint for an hour the horrors of hell. And maybe I can scare you to jump into heaven. You know, some nonsense like that. What? Oh. Yeah, <clears throat> that's actually a really good example. I mean, Hollywood even feeds on that. If you don't know what Peggy's talking about, how many of you have ever seen Disney's movie Pollyanna, a back in the 50s or 60s movie with Haley Mills? And uh, they've got this, this preacher, and she, you know, she grew up on the mission field. Her parents were missionaries that died, and now she's come as an orphan to live with her aunt <clears throat> in this very proper American community back in the 1800s. And and uh, the preacher gets up and she's, you know, her. she said her dad used to talk about, and I don't know that this is necessarily always the best either, but he talked about the happy texts, the happy texts in scripture. And when she gets up there, that pastor stands up there, Carl Malden, if you know who that actor was, and he's standing up there, death comes unexpectedly, and everybody's like, mm, you know, and... And I still remember one of the comments of one of the, the, the people that's there when they go to Sunday dinner after goes, hellfire and brimstone on top of bacon and eggs. It makes for a bad stomach, you know. But see, this, and this is what Hollywood, but this is what the world has communicated to us. And this is what a lot of people foolishly think does. But he says it's God's kindness. Kindness is not an in-your-face thing. Kindness is an attitude that is gentle. It puts people at ease. In fact, that word kind, I always think one of the interesting it's places that it's used is that there is a comparative form of that word kind that Jesus used when he says, nobody that is, has old wine then says, I would rather have new wine. Because he says the old wine is kinder. Our Bibles say better, but just kinder. In other words, it's smoother, it's mellowed, it's gone through its process, and it doesn't have all the things that might make it bitter. And he says, so it's, it's kinder. Paul says the same thing over in Romans chapter 2. It's the kindness of God that brings a person to change their mind or brings them to repentance when they realize that, that they are a sinner. And that's the Spirit's job. That's not my job to convince them they're a sinner. Jesus tells us in John 16, that's the, that's the Spirit's job to show them that they're a sinner. My job, your job as a believer, is to share the good news with them, to tell them who Jesus is and what he did for them. You don't have to get in their face and say, you're going to burn in hell if you don't believe in Jesus. That's not your job. Your job is to say, Christ did it all. He did everything. And let me tell you what that is. And you tell them about the fact that he died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and all they have to do is believe. That's God's kindness, that he was so kind that he would bear our penalty and give us life. So if we go back to the first part of chapter 2, 
the first part of chapter 2, when he's talking about healthy doctrine, I'm trying to give those as an examples, that I would say examples of that healthy doctrine is what we're saying about God. It's a lot of other things. It's an example of using the other scriptures right. Do I, as we've said, do I learn things from David slaying Goliath? Yes, I learn things from that. Do I think that God's going to, you know, bring that great big bad guy into my hand? No, I don't think that. Because that's not a promise that he's made to me. So we, we're talking about the fact that these pastors need to be able to communicate truth because he wants these people to be healthy in their doctrine. In doctrine in this context that they accept to be true, but they're not practicing it. Okay? So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this doctrine about God. So now, let's talk about these elders in very quickly. We've already kind of talked about these guys. We're simply talking about older men. And the first thing he says about these older men in there, um, and, oh, I totally missed this first one. I don't, I don't even see it up here, but that's okay. The first word there is the word temperate or the word sober. In other words, and it's interesting. He's going to repeat this idea a couple of other times, and he repeats this with regard to the elders, and he says this in other, pl other places. He, he talks about, like, bishops, they need to be guys that don't sit around with a bottle of wine in their hand. It's the idea. Why? Because I think the very fact that Paul has to mention this so often is because they were in a culture where everybody drank. From the time they were rather young, when they were weaned, they were drinking Wine mixed with water. It was diluted tremendously, but they did nonetheless do this. But then they would have wine around and people would drink it. And so people drank a lot. And it was really easy for people to drink too much. And it probably was just part of their culture. And if that's what the rest of your culture does, you don't think there's much evil about it. But he says, no, you need to be training these older men that they're actually people who are sober. It's not appropriate for any believer ever. In fact, Paul, remember when he talks about drunkenness over in Ephesians 5.18? He says, don't be drunk by means of wine, in which is, and we have that word asotia, unsavingness, it, a word that the Greeks used, it was reckless. It was reckless. Why is it reckless? Well, because when you in, are become inebriated, when your senses get clouded, people make stupid decisions and stupid choices. Like, yes, I can drive home. I can do this. And I've had friends in many years past that told the horror stories of trying to drive home like a half mile and they were and they said I don't even know how I made it because I don't even remember half that trip because they were so drunk. And I remember turning to one of them. I was we were working together and I'm working and I'm filling out paperwork and I said, "I'm sorry, but that's stupid because you weren't just endangering yourself, you're endangering others." And he kind of recognized, he kind of sheepishly says, yeah, you're right. He knew that. I don't think he liked me and told that. I don't know if I should have said something, but I couldn't help. He wasn't saved. I probably should have kept my mouth shut, but this is a long time ago. And I was even more stupid then than I am now. So anyway, but the idea, elders should be, first of all, sober. Second of all, he says elders should be dignified. Some of your Bibles have the word grave. The word semnos that he uses, not drawn into fights. They learn how to stand away from stuff like this. It's so easy. And I think it's even easier today than it was when I was growing up. 
because now I don't even have to leave my house to get drawn into a fight. All I have to do is pick up my phone and get on some social media platform and somebody on there is saying something. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. And you're drawn into that. And he says, that's, he says, not that way. Not like that. You stay out of the fights. You stay above, you're above being drawn into that nonsense. We've illustrated that word before, and I'm not going to take you there, but over in the book of Acts in the city of Corinth, when the people try to bring charges against Paul and these other people, and the, they start talking about the charges, and the, the pro councils up there go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I hearing you guys right? Is this a question about your religion? And they're like, yeah. And they go, I'm not going to make any decision about your religion. You guys settle that. And you know what the, the Jewish people do? They take their own Jewish leader and they beat him up right there in front of the proconsul seat. And you know what it says about the proconsul? He remains dignified. He, stands, he doesn't look, he doesn't get into it. He's not like, yeah, oh man, oh, look at that. No, he just stands there. He just like ignores the whole thing. While they're carrying on like a bunch of crazed people down there, beating up their own leader, he doesn't get drawn into it. Doesn't get drawn into it. And so he says, the elders, older men, first of all, sober. Second of all, they're dignified. That is, they remain above these. Thirdly, they're this word sensible. And he uses this word sensible for all of these people. And that word sensible is an attitude that involves salvation. The Greeks used it of a person that was discerning to say, you know what? Doing that crazy thing is maybe not a good idea. Okay? I remember years ago, Peg and I, one morning while we were eating breakfast, we were watching uh, a newscaster that was, I don't know where they were in the world, but they were visiting. He decided to do one of these stunts. There's a part of me that thinks this would be cool and a part of me that goes, there's no way. But he was up on a big hill on a bike and he tore down that hill real fast, went out on a, on a jump and went out there and kicked the bike away from him and went off into water. I bet some of you are thinking, oh man, that would be cool to do. <laughs> but you know what? I'm just saying, from my perspective, you might think I'm very cautious, which is probably true. I would look at that and say, that's not sensible. To actually put yourself at risk that you're not going to hit that bike, that you're going to jump off and land on. I know probably a thousand people before him have done this and no one's gotten hurt. That's fine. But I'm just saying, that's the way the Greeks looked at this. As a Christian, we have, a, we have something more than just physical safety or physical salvation that brings in this. We have spiritual salvation that we, that we bring into this. So these old elder men, and this should be true of us, guys, guys, because it's talking about this, this. We don't have any younger men in, in this category in our assembly here. We're all older. We look at this and we ought to all recognize we should be sensible. We should have an attitude that reflects salvation. As we go through life, as we interact with people on the job, people in our home, different situations, our attitude, our framework of mind should be salvation. Um, oftentimes, the word, the expression we, we hear these days is a Christian worldview. And I kind of understand what they're saying. But I think maybe a better way to do this would be, say, a Christian salvation view. You view the world and everything in this world through the lens of your salvation. Because it goes back to what we said at the beginning when we were talking about healthy doctrine, that your lifestyle is going to say something about your God. 
So the way you conduct your business on a daily basis, whether that is interacting with your family, as we've said, whether that's interacting with your neighbors, whatever it is, you ought to be, it ought to be being reflected through a lens of salvation. Now, uh, Josh has said this many times, you don't run a church like a business, but you don't run a business like a church. And I agree with that. But that doesn't mean that as Christians, we don't have a lens generally of our salvation that even the decisions we make outside of church should reflect who we are in Christ, should reflect the work of the Spirit, should reflect who we are as children of God, who we are as sons of God. And so he says they ought to be then sensible. Then we come to the next one, healthy in the faith. Keep, keep coming to this expression in the faith, and he talked about being healthy in the faith back in chapter the last chapter where he was concerned about the effect of those false teachers had on believers. And Titus, you need to be engaged with these people because you want these believers to be healthy in the faith, and they're not going to be if they're listening to these false teachers, false teachers that are going to come along and say, we're going to pass that plate one more time today. I want you to dig deep this time. And I, I, I can tell you right now that God is going to open the storehouses. That's right out of the Old Testament, right? He's going to open those storehouses and rain down riches on you. Right? Baloney. <laughs> you have no promise in the word of God. So healthy in the faith for you means, it, well, let's go to the faith. What is the faith? The what? Okay, so nobody else can hear what she's saying, I'm quite sure, but the promises from God on which you base your Christian life. We spent over a year looking at promises throughout the New Testament just to trying to jog your mind into thinking about the fact that God's made lots of promises to us that make up our Christian life. So being healthy in the faith means you know the promises that are for you and you're not basing your life on the promises that are not for you. Are there promises that God made to Israel? Yeah. Has he made those same promises to you? Not all of them. I have some that are similar. But some of those, most of those promises he made to them. And we've, we've illustrated that. We just illustrated it a few weeks ago with, the, with the, the, the false teachers. If I work on the Sabbath, which would be yesterday, but from a Christian perspective, the way I was raised, that was Sunday. But guess what? There is no Sabbath day like that. We have one time that we say, you and I have a Sabbath we can have a Sabbath rest, and it's a Sabbath kind of rest. It's a different term. And that's in Hebrews 4. And we get that when we rest from our works, and those works are from trying to be good enough. How many Christians spend tons of time in their life trying to be good enough for God? And so we, if, we, we know, if we just go back and review our salvation, we'd say he's already done it. But anyway, but let's say that you think that you have to keep some sort of a Sabbath, and in doing that, you think that if you, you break that Sabbath, that God's going to curse you. Or you think if you keep the Sabbath, that God's going to bless you. You're going to, be, you're going to do better by doing that. Those are promises God made to Israel. Those are supernatural promises. Let me give you a good example out of the Old Testament. They not only took a Sabbath day, 
But every seven years they had a Sabbath year. They took a whole... Could you imagine what that'd be like to be a farmer? And for a whole year, you didn't farm anything. You didn't harvest your crops. You're going to have a whole bunch of volunteer crops, right? Those of you that have farmed, you're going to have stuff that's going to volunteer. Your apple trees are going to keep producing. Your grapes are going to continue. But you're, you're, not, you're not doing any work in that stuff. You're just letting it go for a year. You know what God promised them? God made the promise that if they observed that, that in the year leading up to that, that he would give them enough abundance that it would take them, not just through that year, but until the next year's harvest. So we're talking about, if I, I was trying to remember if I've done the math on that right, but that's two years. Essentially, they're getting enough to last for two years. And you'd say, well, what happens if he gives you enough and you decide not to do it anyway? You already got it. Guess what? Stuff can go away really fast, right? <laughs> you go out and open your green, your, green your green bin, you look in there, look at it, and you find out that somehow or another rats got into it, and they've devoured, you know, 60% of your grain. That's happened to people. I remember a few years ago down in Australia watching video where they were talking about a massive a mice and rat infestation that was just devouring tons of crops in storage. And they were trying to destroy it. So that kind of thing can happen. So we're just trying to put it in perspective. God hasn't made that promise to us. If you farm and you decide, well, we're going to take a seventh year off and not farm the crops, God's made, maybe, maybe you'll enjoy taking a year off, but you have no promise from God that you're going to be able to get through the year without you see how we have how that's not a promise for us. So healthy in the faith is having the promises that are for us versus the promises that are not for us. Taking Israel's promise would not be healthy. I've used this illustration before, and I just throw this in. My dad has been on on medicine for his heart going back quite a few years, and he's taken different things like that. And I could say, well, he's my dad. And, some of you guys maybe know exactly what I'm saying, but as I kind of look at myself in the mirror and as I listen to myself more and more, I'm thinking I sound more like my dad and I'm looking more like my dad. And so, well, I could say, well, you know, I'm my dad's son. He takes it, maybe it'd be good for me too. Well, maybe I don't, maybe I haven't had the same issue that he has. And it's good for him. He ought to do what the doctor says. Me, on the other hand, for me just to take what the doctor gave to him for me, that wouldn't be healthy, would it? Wouldn't be healthy. So taking somebody else's prescription, in this case, their promises from God would not be healthy. And then the last thing he says, so sound in the faith, and he says, sound in love. Sound in love. Interesting, all three of these have definite articles. Sound in the faith, sound in the love. What do you, th what do you think he means when he says sound in the or healthy in the love? What do you think he means by that? What? I can't hear. I I think I think it's the fact that he's given us one. It always goes back, keeps coming back. To, he's given us that one command to love one another. So you ought to be healthy if you're living by the the faith, living in God's promises. One of the things that ought to be expressed by that is a real love for other believers. So you're healthy in that. 
healthy in that means you love the other believers. You take time. You do what's necessary. When there's needs, as you're able, you address those needs. You do those kinds of things. This isn't the only thing that's true for me, but I always think this uh, for, for elders. He's talking about the, el the older men, not the elders themselves in terms of kind of an office. But the elders, I always think one way that you love, I'm going to ask the other people that teach here, but Josh and, and Jim in particular, since they're sitting right here, you can love the saints by taking the time to sit down and study the word of God. Not to go, oh, that's right. I got to preach tomorrow morning. Peg, give me an hour. I'm going to throw something together for tomorrow morning. Now, sometimes, sometimes you don't have a choice. That has happened. I bet we've all been in that situation where you know, comes uh, crunch time comes, and we're put in a situation where, yeah, we put something together in an hour. For me, I'm I don't know. My brain, see, I think feel feel like my brain moves more slowly than it used to. It takes me longer to study through things and think through stuff than it used to. But that's a way that you can love believers is actually taking time to do those kind of things. But that's just one example. So I would so I'm suggesting there you use love by exercising your spiritual gift. It's not the only way that you're going to love. There are other needs that people have. And then the last word that he uses here in verse 2, or verse 2 is, and in the patience. In the patience. Patience is maintaining the character that God wants you to have while you're under some tough stuff. You're bearing some heavy weights. You're, well, there's pressures on you. There's negative things. There's adversity. And patience, let's put it this way. Patience is not part of the fruit from the Spirit, despite the fact that in most of your modern translations, they've chosen to take the word long-suffering and apply the word patience to it. In this particular word, a lot of your modern translations use the word endurance. I'm not in, interested in getting into fighting that battle anymore, but I still like the word patience in this because it really does have the idea. Maybe endurance is a good one because I, I, when I think of endurance, I think of like a person that runs a long race, you know, and you get to the halfway point in the race and you're like, uh, I don't want to do this. I've only won, I've only run one long race in my life. During the pandemic, there was a virtual half marathon. I decided to do that. And I can know what that's like. You get about the halfway point on that and you're like, nobody's going to know if I quit. <laughs> I'm just not going to log this. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I was like, no, I can keep going. I can keep going. Endurance. You get that idea? You know, you're going through things. And so you could say, hey, endure. You're under this. Your body's tired. You're wearing out from whatever the service you're carrying on. And he says, you, you bear up under that. I want you to flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because we have these three words used over here, and I, I'm just always amazed when I come back to this, um, how often these three ideas recur in various combinations. Paul's remembering the Thessalonians early on. He says in verse 3, and he's giving, what he's doing, he says is he's giving thanks, but he's, rem he's remembering these people while he's worshiping, remembering your your work from faith. See, faith produces a work. You believe these promises of God, and there's work that, that results 
in terms of operating on the basis of, of those promises. And your labor that comes from love. Love's going to cause you to exhaust yourself, not just to go, uh, it's good enough. It's good enough. It's going to say no. Let's really do this well. These We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's do this well for them. So he says, it's a labor. It becomes not just a work, but now a labor from love. And then the last part, and patience, that comes from hope. Now he's kind of flipped there because he's got the hope there connected with this. But yeah, patience in there. Because, I, and I don't know if you guys ever run into this, but it seems like sometimes... When you're serving other believers in love and you're doing these things, it's really easy for problems to come along and to kind of go, oh, why can't it just go easy? Well, I would say Peggy was here during some of that this last week. Dwight got in on some of it. Um, thank goodness the Garnick boys aren't here to be able to say, hey, yeah, I remember. Yeah, Tim was a little frustrated with that. You know, you're trying to do some of this project and some of it doesn't go, it doesn't work well and you're kind of like, ah. You know, with that thing, and, you know, I'm not up here. <laughs> Inside my head, there's a little bit of that going on, and then you're, but then you're going. But it was amazing, and I have to say this. When you do those things, and this happened more than once. In fact, I, some of you already know this story from, from Wednesday night. But we had a drain in our bathroom that we've had problems with for the last, I don't know, six or seven years. That we we put a shower in 25, 27 years ago, and uh, the drain's been leaking, and we'd kind of get it fixed, and then it would leak again, and, it would, and so finally it was like, it's coming out. It's coming out, we're gonna do this differently. And there was a lot of in and out underneath the house, and in and out underneath the house, and in and out underneath the house, and it was kinda, but you know what? There were a couple times, when I first went under there, and this job, right from the get-go, isn't going well. Right out the door, you're like, that nut is not going to come off the bottom of that drain. It, I mean, I'm working and it's, and I'm like, God, I really need your help because I want to just lose it right now. I just want to just be so upset with this thing and I don't need to be like that. You can give me the ability to be calm. Nobody else is going to witness this because I'm under here by myself. Although my wife's right above me and she can kind of hear some of what I'm saying and what's going on. So I can be a testimony to my wife. And you know what? The job didn't go well. But you know what happened? God gave me the ability to keep it together. I did scream one time. But that was because something hit me on the back and rolled down my legs and all I could think of was that there must have been a big mouse and it wasn't. It was just a cable that fell off of a, <laughs> a support up above. <laughs> anyway. And he did scream, people. And I did scream. I was, and I'm, it's pecking here and I had my respirator on uh, underneath there. But, but there's patience. Yeah, but God gives you a work from faith Love makes it become a labor. Hope gives you the patience to keep doing that work even when it doesn't go easy. And do it with the right character. Not just put your head down like, oh, fine. No. Just keep doing it with the proper attitude. Patience. So these are things that he's giving. I don't know about you. This is, 
all of us can take this in, but this was addressed to the men. And I didn't plan this to fall on Father's Day. This is just where it came. And that's all the further we're going to go today. But I don't know about you guys, women too, but guys, how many of you would look at those things and say, you know, those are things that we need to be reminded of. Those are things that we need from the Word of God to remind us on a daily basis. Because we run into this stuff, not just once in a while, every day and multiple times a day. We have places to actually put this into practice. And we do it by relying on God. We do this by the work of the Spirit, by remembering our outlook on who we are in Christ all together in the body. And I trust that that's an encouragement for you as you move out and do those things. I watch a lot of you serve and do things in different ways. I realize some of those things don't go easy. I used my illustrations today, but I've watched some of you go through this kind of stuff. I'm going to pick on Dwight here because Dwight has done this more than once where he's had things to do. And he's actually, he specifically, I haven't asked him permission, I won't tell you what, but he said, I'd like you to pray for me because I've got to go do this. And I'm <laughs> and. He, essentially, he wants to reflect Christ in, in what he was going to have to do. And I was like, I really appreciated the fact that he wanted somebody to pray for him, going ahead and doing that. I don't think we ought to be, I don't think we ought to be ashamed or timid about asking believers to pray for us when we have to go do something like that. And we're, we want to do it in a way that glorifies God. I appreciate that attitude. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together today. We're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the fact that uh, um, it is appropriate for us to have a frame of mind, an attitude that it reflects our salvation as we look at this world. And it affects the way we function. It affect, affects the way that we carry out our work and interact with people. And uh, as this was especially uh, pointed to those who were the, the older men in the church, we ask that we would take those of us that fall within that category, that we would take these things to heart and apply them as we have opportunity, and we would thank you for it then. Amen. So I guess you all know what that means. Next week, the, the ladies, so if you ladies don't want to get preached at, you, you don't, don't stay home. <laughs> <laughs>